Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA.com. Now in this podcast series, we trace the journey of food from farm to fork, looking at how technology has changed and altered this journey. We started by speaking to Sky Kurtz of Pure Harvest Smart Farms, the UAE's first hydroponic farm, where they grow tomatoes in a smart greenhouse. Welcome, Sky. Hey, thank you very much, Triska, for having me. So I was not expecting this as I drove up uh, to Alain here. There are no tractors. <laughs> <laughs> no, no tractors, only during construction. So explain to us exactly what is this farm? What is Pure Harvest and how does it differ from normal farms? Certainly. Uh, Pure Harvest, we believe, is bringing the Middle East into the next generation of agriculture. And how we're doing this is we are deploying very high-tech, climate-controlled greenhouses that enable us to grow year-round locally grown fresh produce and we're able to produce that affordably allowing us to displace air freighted imports as well as some sea freighted imports and in doing so we offer a couple of things we one we we offer a food security solution for a region that's heavily import dependent second we consume very little water we use less than 40 liters of water per kilogram of production whereas incumbent traditional farms use around 260 liters of water per kilo. Wow. Okay. So the, you're growing tomatoes at the moment. And it's in this, if I can explain it in some way, it's a, it's a greenhouse, a very big greenhouse. Yes. With uh, a lot of high-tech kit, it seems. It, it is a glass structure um, that is a, 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 around a seven-meter tall greenhouse. So it's quite tall. Um, also inside, we use a lot of different technologies. We have over five climate management technologies, and that excludes the plant itself, which is itself a cooling tool. Much as we sweat, they transpirate. And these are technologies that you guys have built in-house, or do you, have you got them? I would characterize it more as system integration, right? Okay. So we've worked, we've sourced the best technology for the given solution from around the world and then integrated those technologies in a new way. And on top of that, we've done some uh, new innovation. So for instance, in our climate management chamber, the way that we've in integrated mechanical cooling, so like air conditioning, but really okay. high-tech air conditioning, the way we integrated that, and then also we capture the water created by that, the condens condensed water, Okay. And we recirculate that water into the irrigation system because we don't want to waste a thing. These are innovations we've done that are really bespoke to us. And the integration of this entire system, the orchestra of managing the climate, is first of its kind. And also, coincidentally, Triska, you're here for a first of a kind innovation um, in that we have now, as of today, these white boxes, we have deployed a very high-tech uh, artificial lighting system, LED lights that are specifically designed the light spectrum to feed tomato plants. Okay. And we're using them to supplement the light when light levels are low, whether due to cloud cover and dust or due to the winters, when winters have very short days. Uh, is that what that man hovering above is doing? Is he installing them? Yeah, he's actually calibrating them at this point. So they're already on. I was standing next to them for the very first time to see them on. These very bright pink and purple bulbs. Uh, why, why are they pink and purple? Uh, it has to do with light spectrum. The, the visible okay. light spectrum they produce is only on the ultraviolet ends. Okay. But the non-visible light, um, the PAR light as it's called, which is use, a useful spectrum to the plant, uh, is produced but you can't see it. And it's pr a tremendous amount of the PAR light is produced. They're, they're designed specifically to produce only the spectrum of light that's used by a plant. Okay. So tell me a bit more about the tomatoes. From what I remember, you grow them hydroponically. Yes. What exactly does that mean? Uh, certainly. So we grow hydroponically, and all that means is we grow inside of a substrate, not in the soil. So we use, in our case, rock wool. It's spun glass, effectively. It's a form of fiberglass, so it's, it's an organic material. It's made of right. glass, of sand. But 
it's spun in a specific density that it can serve as a root structure, like a, a thing for the roots to hold on to while they gather nutrients. And the way we feed them is we use a nutrient bath that's bespoke to the given variety. Okay. So we customize the mix of fertilizers into the water, and then we use a little uh, hose and inject that water in the specific proportions that the plant needs into the base of the plant. In doing so, we don't waste anything. We don't waste water, fertilizer, anything. And any of the excess water or fertilizer goes back into a tray, runs back into our uh, UV tr filtration and treatment system and gets recirculated back in. So we so do not waste any water. So how do you know how much nutrients each plant needs? Well, so there's a huge body of research on this, uh, both in universities and with the seed suppliers themselves, companies like Reichswan. These companies research as they develop these seeds they then research what's, what's the best way to take care of them. They'll run hundreds of trials of the same seed with different levels of irrigation, et cetera. Okay. And then they give advice and counsel the grower on growing that specific variety. And then, of course, the grower's job is to navigate uh, the specific climate environment or the specific needs and flavor profile, sort of like a, a chef. He, they'll do this to, to customize the flavor profile and, and the behavior of the plant to get optimal yields. So it does, does it differ at all um, with the fact that we're in the desert and we're growing these tomatoes here? Does the nutrient profile differ? Do the needs Absolutely. of the plant differ? Absolutely. Um, everything about the environment and the amount of light available to the plant okay. impacts its consumption of food. So let me start with the building blocks. Photosynthesis is light and CO2, right? We dose artificial CO2. We take CO2 that is... Uh, green, that same food grade CO2, we inject into the air okay. and feed it to the plants. So we give more food. Now what they need to make yield is light. With the right amount of light, hence the artificial lighting trials and the amount of light in the Middle East, which is abundant, we give a lot of food to them and grow a tons of plant. But the more of it you grow, the more water and nutrients you need to feed it. So we customize that for its needs and how fast it's consuming those minerals and food. Also, sorry, one last thing. We actually produce 17 different varieties of tomatoes in this one greenhouse because we're experimenting with the different genetic material to identify which ones behave best in our system. And now, after about six months of trial, we now know the absolute best performers. And when we plant again, we plant only the best to get the absolute so best performance. So do you use sensors to figure out how much light, how much water? Yes. Uh, sorry, I failed to mention. This is IoT-enabled agriculture, right? We are using the Internet of Things. And how we do that, we have a de deployed sensors that are measuring everything, not only the climate, so temperature and humidity, but also within the water, we're measuring the temperature of it. We're also measuring the, its nutrient content. We send it away for various testing. So it's super, uh, it's super important that we uh, measure just about everything we can uh, so that we can optimize the production. And is that done automatically? So does the computer know which plant is behaving which way and adjust it? Well, the computer measures. Okay. Ultimately, the grower uh, uses that information in a certain way. Okay. Over time, and we're certainly evaluating solutions, there's artificial intelligence that can help uh, your machine learning. They can learn from the behavior of the plant and then optimize these things. Today, we are not yet deploying that. Everything we're deploying is such a blunt instrument in a way. These are technologies that have been proven around the world and we've customized them for our needs and integrated them into one solution to do this. Step two is how do we further optimize this, right? Not only in the expansion, uh, even operational matters that are not just tech. Let me give an example. We, we've learned specific pumps that we're sourcing from around the world. It's such a corrosive environment 
and the heat is so extreme, the seals and the pumps went bad. That could affect our ability to control the climate, which could destroy the crop. So we're taking out, we're adding redundancies where these things are needed okay. to solve these operational challenges that we've learned from the proof of concept. I'm really excited about the tray of tomatoes you have in front of us <laughs> yeah, right now. So you have four different varieties, right? Uh, well, yes, I brought, I brought you actually five varieties. Five, two varieties okay. of the candy tomato, okay. Angel and Suitel. And then I brought you two varieties of the cherry on the vine. And then we, I brought you uh, one variety of the tomato on the vine. Okay. Uh, which and is kind of the vine, the traditional large format so, vine So tomato. you got these seeds from abroad and then you've hydroponically grown them here? Well, actually, funny, we not only got the seeds from abroad, we actually paid to nurse the seeds abroad. And then when they were little seedling plants... We put them in these special containers and flew them here. And so they came here as a tiny vine. Now they've grown to the seven-meter-high beasts you see out there. So they're not genetically modified. They're just not at 100% all. natural. Correct. Is it organic? Would it be correct to say they're organic? Or? No, uh, sorry. They're, well, seeds are organic, but okay. the production is not organic. And the reason why organic standards require that you grow in soil. Okay. It's, in my view, protectionism. Uh, there is nothing about this. It, that is an organic substrate that we're growing in. We use minerals and water. We use no pesticides. 91% of people believe that organic means no pesticide. It oh. couldn't be farther from the truth. Really? There's plenty of pesticide in organics. In fact, sometimes more than in traditional farming. However, they're organic pesticides. And don't get me wrong, organics, the movement of organics, there's a lot of good about it, but there's a lot of misunderstanding that's being capitalized upon to capture a huge pricing premium on the shelf. So do these, I mean, organic products are, are known to have more nutrients, let's say, um, or that's the belief. What about these tomatoes? Do, do they contain more or less nutrients than the standard? And, well, t I would say t the, the best standard, they're on par generally, sometimes slightly higher in specific minerals like calcium and iron because we're again putting these in concentrated levels inside the plant what we're differentiate ourselves on is the incredible quality the sweetness the bricks content which yeah. is the measurement of sugar and also of course you can see in front of you the redness the symmetry but then the other thing i would add on is freshness right we're producing locally selling directly we pick it pack it cool it ship it within four hours and so as opposed to three or four day plane journey, we have none of that. It goes right from our gates to the gates of Carrefour to you, or to Spenny's or Waitrose right to you. And lastly, I would say we want to differentiate ourselves on, the, on really the quality, but it also in terms of its sustainability. We're producing, we're sourcing CO2 locally and consuming CO2 that otherwise would have gone into the atmosphere. So we, we're carbon negative, right? We're not only consuming carbon, we displace the airplane that otherwise would have brought you food. So, and then on top of that, we're also uh, not using any pesticide whatsoever. We use beneficial insects. I think you saw the bumblebees flying around? Yes, there, there are some bumblebees happily yeah. so pollinating. We, <laughs> we, we use uh, the bumblebees to pollinate, but we also use other bene beneficial insects like what's called a macrolophus. It's sort of like a ladybug, and it's, a, it's sort of think of it as a hawk. It's, it's out there as a predator taking on the bad flies and other things that try to get inside the greenhouse and bring disease. So how secure is the greenhouse if you can get insects in there? It's very secure, but it, nature finds a way. There okay. is no greenhouse that is completely impervious to ever, ever witnessing uh, an insect, but they're quite rare. We have very little. Uh, we do not use pesticide regularly, so hence this incredibly lush oasis in the desert is impervious to all of the incredible things around that want to get in here. And the way we do that, our greenhouse is almost all the time closed. It's called a semi-closed greenhouse. It is most of the time closed, but sometimes we open it up to circulate air, uh, reduce humidity by letting out air and sucking in dry okay. air, or for instance, um, because of pressure builds so high and we're pressurizing the greenhouse to control air, it gets too high, you need to release it or you burst the glass, we do that. But we put nets over every single opening. 
So pretty much it's sealed, but really nature finds a way. So you're using bees, the most natural way to pollinate. Do you think there will come a time when technology will be able to do that? We'll have little nanorobots. Very interesting you say that. There, there is technology uh, currently out, these nano uh, drones that are doing pollination and experimenting with it with a combination of computer vision and artificial intelligence. And this is being done at a university in Holland. Also, there, this is really cool, actually. We're looking at running a trial of this. There's a recent predator drone that's about the size of your palm. And this predator drone uh, can fly around and, and uh, witness insects. And then what it does is it pitches its nose down and, and rams those insects with its fan blades and, and kills them like, like a fan. And it's pretty amazing. I'm not kidding. This is a, a, a solution that is now being commercialized. We're investigating the possibility of trialing that here because that would allow us to even reduce any dependence on the IPM. I mean, just to help those bugs out with predator drones that fly around inspecting. Not to mention it's just plain cool. <laughs> um, do you think there's any danger or consequences of using so much technology in, in the food production stage? No. Um, I would say all we're doing is basic physics, right? We are, we, there is heat and there is humidity. We remove the heat or humidity to create the perfect environmental conditions, a Mediterranean climate for the plant. It's no more dangerous than is air conditioning a room so you can go skiing down the street, right? The humans aren't getting hurt inside, nor are the penguins. But it has consequences of energy and et cetera. The danger, I think, would be in, in people not understanding the entire food value chain. This not only provides more sustainable, higher quality, locally grown fresh produce, but also the implications we have all the way down the value chain. We have lower waste. We have longer shelf life, which benefits not only us, but benefits the retailer and the customer, so less waste. Also on the other end, cold chain integrity, the food not going hot, cold, hot, cold, and, and quality and safety implications of that are big. CO2 and sustainability issues. Also for this region, food security, economic diversification. These, all of these things, the entire equation of, of the economic and social impact of feeding people needs to be thought about. And what we're doing in adopting these technologies helps most elements of that. It's one hammer hitting a lot of nails. So with this kind of smart farming, what other produce can you grow? Very good question in light of our expansion. We're currently expanding into Saudi Arabia and expanding our footprint here um, this year. And as part of that, we're going to be diversifying our production into uh, lettuces and microgreens, as well as into strawberries. Plants have different growing behavior and everything about them is different. That is a new step, and we don't want to take too many big steps at once. Like any startup, we need to be responsible about how we grow to ensure that we're successful for our investors. Just to go back, when did you start this business? We started, well, I started this in late 2016, um, doing the design and engineering and technology work, my own feasibility work. I flew all over the world witnessing farms of scale in Holland, Arizona, Mexico. Did you just pick the most challenging thing? You know, it's funny you say that. I, I came from San Francisco, I think you know this, and I was a, a technology investor there. And I, I sort of laugh at myself now because I'm like, why didn't I go like knock off Kareem somewhere or Uber somewhere? Why didn't I, you know, build a, a healthcare information technology software company? I was on several healthcare IT boards. No, no, no business is easy to build. So let, don't let me belittle the accomplishments of these people. But I would say this is super challenging, right? We are trying to, it's hardware, asset intensive, agricultural technology in a region that traditionally saw ag as kind of a hobby farm with government subsidies and garbage. Um, it's also onshore, as I mentioned, huge scale capital requirements in a climate that was unproven, transferring and building technology here, assembling a team, 
recruiting a Dutchman to grow here, not easy. Um, so everything about it is challenging, not to mention early there was resistance, a lot of naysayers, a lot of, I mean, I even went into interviews with well-known tech firms here saying, hey, I really want to raise capital for this IoT-enabled agribusiness I have. And more than one was like, that's not tech. To which I replied, a lot of these e-commerce and internet startups are. I mean, a website with a payment processing engine, and you're saying that my centralized climate terminal controlling seven or eight technologies in multiple codes is not tech. But there's just no understanding of hardware IoT here, and it's growing, it's changing. But two to three years ago, it was not. And the level of capital it required, right? We had to raise almost $6 million to get a proof of concept and MVP off the ground, right? And, and that's who, who funded that? Who, who well, it, uh, one of our investors is the Mohammed bin Rashid Innovation Fund. Secondly, uh, Sharouk Investments, my business partner, uh, Mahmoud Adi, uh, myself, uh, we early, were early to help start Sharouk Investments. It's now expanded and gone on to be a prolific investor in the region, but he was an early visionary in believing and understanding this and partnering with me in building it. Um, we also had a number of angel investors, some of which have been disclosed, like Magnus Olson, a co-founder of Kareem. Um, we also have uh, a number of investors from Mubadala, who are indiv as individuals, not as a fund. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of people. It's a consortium of angel and uh, investors, semi-governmental organization in, in the Mohammed bin Rashid Innovation Fund and RackBank that made this possible. And how long did it take to grow the first tomato? Well, it's from planting to first harvest was about, it varies by variety and crop, okay. but about nine weeks. That's um, quite quick. It's pretty quick. I mean, they, you, once you make the perfect environmental conditions for them, these things grow like a weed. So how, how big is this smart farm? You've just popped on in your mouth. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I'm eating my own product. <laughs> you should try it, by the way. I'm going to have one. What do you think? It's how a tomato should taste. <laughs> I would agree. Honestly, our, we put this slogan on the side of the box, tastes like it should. Mm. And where that came from is everyone we had tried the product would give us a story, a nostalgic story about how the tomatoes are in Syria or in, or in Italy or in wherever they're from. And I even felt the same thing. I'm like, gosh, it's like a California to sun-kissed tomato. And uh, really, we were hoping to tap into that nostalgia and, and have it reflect that it tastes like it should. But to your question, sorry. How, what is the size of this? It's, it's around, uh, it's 6,720 square meters is the production area. The total build is just over 0.8 hectares. And how many, 8, 000, 8, square meters, how many tons of t tomatoes do you produce in nine weeks, let's say? Uh, we or don't disclose week. that publicly, but okay. what I would say, let me say this. Our production per uh, meter is around you know, 10 to 12 times that of a traditional farm. And traditional farms are anywhere from kind of four to eight kilograms per meter. So we're producing a lot of product, you know, north of 450 tons of product in this tiny product and well north of that. So this sounds like the future. I would agree. I mean, I, as you know, my background was a, a private equity investor before I became an entrepreneur. I jokingly say I'm a recovering investor. And um, this is what we hope to achieve. When we, when we set out to prove this, it was to, that, hey, you can uh, harness the, the things that do exist here, what I call the factor endowments, right? We have an abundance of sunlight cheap and abundant land with very limited alternative use. We actually have a lot of water and energy if you stop wasting it, right? We use one seventh or one eighth of the water of a traditional farm. We have 0% corporate tax rates. We have a low cost and fluid labor market. When you go down these things and you think of the cost of farming, these are most of the things in the cost structure of a farm. What is high is of course you have to invest in the technology, the, the capital expenditure, the infrastructure, and also of course the energy. But energy is abundant in this region, and we integrate very well with renewable energies like solar. So 
Counterintuitively, this is one of the best places in the world to farm once you control for climate. My last question to you is, how do you see the use of technology in, in food production? We're seeing now lab-grown meats. You know, you've got the smart farm here. What, what's next? What's, what's the uh, food production industry going to look like in the next 10 to 20 years? Very good question, and I think it's one of the most important questions for humanity, honestly. It's part of the reason I've thrown my career and my life into agricultural technology. There's a commonly cited statistic that around 9.5 billion people will be on the planet by 2050. To feed these people, we need 70% more food than we currently produce. And that 70% is more food than's ever been produced in all of history of humanity. But we need that 70% more food on a declining resource base. We have less water. And climate change is rendering previously hospitable, arid, or sorry, uh, arable climates uh, uh, unfarmable, right? That they're quite challenging. So food production is likely to become increasingly challenging in a world where population is growing tremendously. When you double click on that, where is that population growing? This region has a fast growing population. It doubles about every 20 to 24 years. So a problem where we're already importing over 90% of our fruit and veg is going to double in yes and right as a post-oil world, right? So oil dollars are used to stabilize the currency in a global, global dollar-denominated food market. So you have a recipe of currencies working against you, the cost of food rising because the rest of the world needs it too, and a fast-growing unfed population. To me, that is a recipe for disaster. And what is the, how are we gonna fix that? We're not gonna make more land or water. Water you can with diesel with great environmental cost and energy, et cetera, et cetera. You're gonna do that with resource efficiency. That right now, over 70% of the world's potable water is used in agriculture. A ton of that is wasted. Field farms that spray water in the air, et cetera. So I, I think you're gonna see deployment of controlled environment ag in a big way, and also technologies that enhance controlled environment ag, like the drone technologies we talked about, uh, CRISPR gene editing for better seed selection, et cetera. You're gonna see across the spectrum and value chain of food, you will see innovation. On, the, on a, like what visible technologies you see already now, automated tractors um, that are far more efficient. We're using artificial intelligence to farm better, and then we're integrating with things like drones. So it's not this scary world of uh, genetically modified plants and food and lab-grown meats. It's actually just the systems around it that are becoming more um, advanced and more resourceful. Yes, I would say... It's not to say there isn't a home for lab-grown meats or milks or other things. There's yeah. a lot of tech. I don't believe that human behavior and food changes that fast. I believe it's going to be the things we do eat, more of them, hopefully more of the healthy pieces of that, but also, and, and prices will change uh, uh, the behavior of people. The single greatest driver of what people will eat in the next 20 years will be the price of water. The scarcity of water and water's use in food. So let me, cattle, for instance, use tremendous amounts of water. The amount of water, it's over 17,000 liters of water in one kilogram of beef. But the world has not priced water as if it's scarce. They soon will. They have no choice. That will affect the behavior of consumers, admittedly, in my view, more than uh, knowledge of lab-grown meats or other things. So people will move to more fish protein, for instance, which can be grown also in controlled environments. Yeah. There's big movement in aquaculture and, and farm culture. So I believe that it will be innovations around making existing farms much, much more efficient. And that's what's been done since the beginning. We, everyone probably worried about food security back, you know, six, seven hundred years ago, but then they invented the plow, 
right? Now we've got to get a little farther than that, and we've got to stretch our minds and use technology, but it's possible. And as you know, component costs are falling, technologies are being widely adopted, and you have consumer behavior changing. The confluence of these three events, consumers now care what they put in their face, they care about traceability, they care about sustainability and environmental consciousness. The confluence of all of these things will inform a, more, a better food value chain and lower cost, but technically acceptable products for consumers to enjoy. Sky, thank you very much. It's been very, very interesting finding out more about Pure Harvest and also the future of farming. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you, Tresca.